You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. To the editor, political debate doesn't have to be a food fight, nor does civility need to become a victim of ideological difference. Opponents can disagree without being disagreeable in campaigns and in office. In January of 1969, President Richard M. Nixon called Hubert H. Humphrey the defeated Democratic candidate for president who was leaving Washington. They were certainly not friends. Nixon offered a plane to take the Humphreys home, saying they should leave with some dignity, not standing in line to check baggage. When the Humphreys got aboard, there was a bouquet with a card that said, With best wishes, Pat and Dick. In 1978, less than a week before he died, Humphrey called Nixon, self-isolated in California. He said there would be a memorial service after his death in the Capitol Rotunda with Presidents Jimmy Carter and Gerald Ford and Lady Bird Johnson. He asked Nixon to be there. Nixon said he just couldn't face D.C., but Humphrey persuaded him to attend. On the plane taking Humphrey's body home, I asked Mrs. Humphreys why Nixon, of all people, was there. She said Hubert thought no president of the United States should live in exile. Civility, in both directions, overcame petty partisanship. Norman Sherman, Tucson. The writer was Hubert Humphrey's press secretary during his vice presidency, including during the 1968 campaign, and the editor of his autobiography. From the New York Times, February 15, 2016, Section A, page 18. President, yeah. I have Senator Humphrey for you. Uh, uh, Mr. President, Hubert, how are you? Well, fine, and I wanted to call up just to congratulate you on this historic victory. Well, thank you very much. You, uh, you racked him up. You've been a very uh, statesmanlike man. As I always, uh, always uh, when just speaking as friends, people uh, ask me very privately to compare this with and I said, well, the difference is that when Senator Humphrey and I were campaigning and we had this terrible issue of Vietnam, we both put the country first. And I said, this time, I said, we had a problem where one fellow said any goddamn thing that came in his head. Yeah. For your private information, and uh, I, you should know, for three days, I had the whole thing in my pocket. Yes. And you probably guessed, as you probably guessed. Yes. <laughs> I had a talk with Henry a couple of days ago. Right. Uh, they asked me whether or not we could have got a settlement like this in 69. I, I said no. Yeah. Well, you made a great statement. I asked Henry to call you, but I, th- I think you should know that. Thank you. Within 10 days, you will see it's all falling into place. And we knew it a week ago, but we couldn't say it. I mean, well, I understood that. I, but I felt you had to fight for your man. I understood why, but I know that you didn't approve of some of the tactics. Well, I'll have a talk with you sometime. I knew it, you know, I did what I had to do. Of course you did. If not, Mr. President, this whole defeat would have been blamed on me and some That's of the associates. Right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Well, well, we'll get together and uh, we'll work for the good of the country. That's the important thing. Surely will. And I, I didn't want to let this night go by without. Well, it's so good of you to call. 
fine. By the way, my son was elected to the state senate out here. Isn't that great? Well, I hope we didn't run a, a man against him that gave him any trouble. Well, as a matter of fact, the man that ran against him was a very fine man. I was yeah. afraid the boy wasn't yeah. going to win. Right. But uh, Isn't that great? It's a good campaign, and you can imagine yeah. I feel pretty good tonight. We have some good things going on here, and... Uh, edition of our uh, podcast and uh, this is Randall Walsh your host and this is um, a, a special edition because we're going to look back at the life of <clears throat> Hubert Humphrey who was uh, the, the writer uh, that, that wrote the, the letter that we opened this program with is actually the same letter that we opened the entire series with and it is such a great example of the civility in politics and there was nobody who was a, a better example of the happy warrior than Hubert Humphrey. And, I, you know, I've, I've said this to people, uh, as, as far as being just a fine human being, Hubert Humphrey probably was the finest major political figure in this era as just being a good person. Um, and I think everybody felt that way about him. And, you know, he is, he is, uh, he had these towering figures, Richard Nixon, Lyndon Johnson, John F. Kennedy in this era that uh, tower over Hubert Humphrey that you don't see, don't you may not know or realize that he himself was um, as big a presence as he was as a, as a figure in the 60s 
and the important role he played in civil rights, and I mean very important. In 1948, he gave a speech at the Democratic National Convention that really began what has become the modern civil rights movement in America. I mean, he was he was the guy who who made that case to the American people at the Democratic National Convention, and uh, and so you know I thought here at the end of the, our series on Jimmy Carter, be, it was a, a proper moment to look back at Hubert Humphrey because he died in 1978 uh, at, during the Carter administration. And since we've covered so much of Hubert Humphrey sort of by accident because he's such a big player um, on, on all these different things that we've looked at, he's been present throughout our series. Uh, we're not going to go rehash everything, um, obviously, but I, there are some things that I thought we could do to show you, uh, to give you a feel for the life of Hubert Humphrey. But I thought we'd open with a speech by Bill Clinton, of all people. They were give, they were doing a, an event to honor Hubert Humphrey in Minnesota for a memorial there. And Bill Clinton gives, as he always does, a, a rather remarkable speech uh, about Hubert Humphrey and how much he admired him, but his role in the civil rights movement and how that affected Bill Clinton as a young man in Arkansas, a southern state. So uh, I thought we'd start right there. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mr. Vice President, Governor Dayton, Governor Carlson, Senator Klobuchar, Senator Franken, Dr. Johnson, Senator Cohen, Skip Humphrey, my longtime friend and members of the Humphrey family, to all of you. First, thank you for giving me such a pretty day to come back to Minnesota. <laughs> and a crowd to stare at. I saw my friend Judge Alan Page and Diane up there. I, they used to jog with me when I was president. And I couldn't tell whether I was being protected or humiliated trying to keep up with them. <laughs> I want to thank Fritz Mondale for many things, for being my friend for a long time, for being a fabulous ambassador to Japan. And I want to thank him for teaching me how to laugh in tough times. You may remember that 1980 was not such a hot year to be a Democrat. The Carter-Mondale ticket lost. I became the youngest former governor in American history. It was not a great year. And we had all these Cuban refugees that Castro had let loose and they had all been deposited in my native state where they proceeded to riot, much to my detriment and to Jimmy Carter's. In addition, we had the hottest summer in 50 years. And then, right before Vice President Mondale was scheduled to come to Arkansas to speak to the Democratic Convention to rescue us from all of our misery, a Titan missile silo exploded and a nuclear warhead popped off of the missile and landed in a cow pasture, giving my native state 
the only cow pasture on planet Earth with its very own nuclear warhead. <laughs> so Fritz arrives in Arkansas, in the town where I grew up, to give this speech. And I said, you know, I, I was really grateful to you for sending me all those rioting refugees, and I didn't think I could be any more grateful until I... What is that? <laughs> I once saw a state senator of mine get hit by the American flag, <laughs> and he said, you know, I risked my life for that flag in World War II. I don't think I should be killed by it. <laughs> Anyway, so Mondale arrives in the midst of all this tension. And I'm sitting there with him in a suite at the old Arlington Hotel. And he picks up the phone and calls the Secretary of Defense. We knew he was toast. We knew I was toast. We knew we were all marking time. And Fritz Mondale, in the midst of all that misery, said to Harold Brown, the Secretary of Defense, he said, Harold, I did ask you to get the people's minds off the Cuban refugee crisis, but I think this nuclear warhead was not what I had in mind. <laughs> it said a lot about his character, as well as his sense of humor, and I never forgot it. I was a 26-year-old young man first time I met Hubert Humphrey, and he was barging across a hotel lobby to go to his speech during the 1972 campaign. And I barged in through all the staff members and shook his hand. And I told him I was from Arkansas, and I thanked him for that 1948 speech. And I thanked him for helping to engineer the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And I thank them for helping to change the course of America and to raise the level of common decency in the American South. All my life, I loved and admired Hubert Humphrey. He believed that public service was a noble endeavor he believed that his adversaries need not be his enemies. He believed that with a happy heart and an open ear and an honest dialogue, a lot of conflicts could be resolved. And he lived his life to do it. When Al Franken said what Hubert Humphrey would be doing on some of these contentious political issues in Washington, I found no quarrel with it. But I think there's another set of issues which would concern him greatly. Hubert Humphrey believed that our founding fathers were serious when they pledged their lives, their fortunes, their sacred honor to form a more perfect union. He did not think it was an accident that our national motto was a pluribus unum. Nor did he think it was surprising that we had never become truly one out of many. 
since our founders legitimized slavery in the Constitution, even as Thomas Jefferson was saying, that he trembled to think that God was just in the face of his and others' ownership of slaves. In other words, he believed that the lifetime work of every American was to do what was possible and at hand to form a more perfect union. And now, in spite of all the economic difficulties of the moment, in spite of this big increase in the debt that the current financial crisis has caused as fewer people pay taxes and more people need unemployment and food stamps. Last week, if you wanted to, you could borrow a million dollars for a year for $15,000 in interest. In other words, less than inflation. Because people still believe that we are on that mission to form a more perfect Union. Therefore, I think it would disturb him when a member of the United States House of Representatives said that between 78 and 81 of his colleagues were members of the Communist Party. That actually happened a couple of weeks ago. And I thought to myself, I didn't think there were 80 communists left in the Western Hemisphere outside Cuba. <laughs> So I thought it's kind of interesting. I want to know who the rascals were. And I'm still trying to find out. I think he would have been proud of John McCain for sticking up for the Secretary of State's aide, Huma Abedin, when she was attacked for being a Muslim. I think all these attempts to restrict the franchise by imposing new requirements on voting would bother him. You know, in Pennsylvania last week, they had litigation over the Pennsylvania restrictions, and it was a difficult time for those who were pushing them because the Attorney General of Pennsylvania stipulated that he could not produce one piece of evidence of voter fraud in Pennsylvania, and that if the court decided to strike down the voter requirements, he did not believe there would be an increase in voter fraud. And at the same time, the chief sponsor of the legislation said, he said, oh, I passed this bill to determine the outcome of the election in Pennsylvania. In Texas, where the lawsuit over their restrictions is being heard in Washington because of a past history of discrimination. When it was pointed out that poor Hispanic voters who live in rural areas and have low incomes would have to travel an average of 100 miles and spend $22 to become legally registered voters under these new requirements, the Attorney General said, heck, it's Texas. We're a big state. People, they're getting used to driving a long way. We're not talking about J.R. Ewing, folks. We're talking about minimum wage workers a long way from home for whom 22 bucks is still a lot of money. 
what I want to say is because of what Hubert Humphrey did, with all the problems we've got, we are well positioned for the 21st century economically for things that aren't directly related to economics. Your country, your country is younger than Europe, younger than Japan, and in 20 years will be younger than China because Minnesota has grown more diverse. Because we have people from all over the world, from different religions and different races. And youth, having lost it, I can tell you this, youth matters. <laughs> to the economic future of a nation. It determines the range of possibilities. It doesn't guarantee us anything. We still have to be smart and innovate and invest in the right things. Do something about our long-term debt. We've got to deal with all that. But what got us to the point of continuing possibility in the 21st century is the commitment to a more perfect union, to opening the doors of freedom and opportunity, to embracing our diversity instead of being afraid of it. And I always love the Humphrey quote from late in his life that the moral test of government is how it treats those in the dawn of life, those in the twilight of life, those in the shadows of life. But that means that those things are necessary because we are trying to build a country of one out of many because we are committed to a more perfect union, because we believe that a country of shared opportunities and shared responsibilities and a shared sense of community will produce greater prosperity and be a greater force for peace and security and decency and freedom all around the world. For as long as I live, I will be grateful for Hubert Humphrey's life. You have no idea how many times, I was only two years old when Hubert Humphrey gave that speech in 1948 that Dr. Johnson talked about. You have no idea how many times I watched a tape of that speech when I was a boy growing up in Arkansas because I knew, I knew that that led directly to the passage of the Civil Rights Act to the passage of the Voting Rights Act, to the passage of the Open Housing Act, and eventually to the election of Barack Obama as President of the United States. And I knew that it made possible for Keith Ellison to go to Congress. I knew that it made possible for people of all different kinds to stand up and be counted and be judged, in the words of Dr. King, not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character and by their abilities and by their vision and by their ideas. I want to live in a country again where somebody in the Senate like Hubert Humphrey can sit down and cut a deal 
That's supposed to be bad language. I think that's a noble thing. And cut a deal with a man like Everett Dirksen and bring a civil rights bill to the floor that will pass with over 70 votes that are bipartisan when actually because of the lingering presence of Southern Democrats, a slightly higher percentage of Republicans than Democrats voted for it in the United States Senate. I want that kind of America again where we can do things together across party lines because we believe we can build a more perfect union. And if it comes again, you remember what Senator Klobuchar said, it will not come from people who look like they spent all morning sucking lemons. It will not come from people who say the sky is falling. It will come from happy warriors. It will come from people who believe in the possibilities that lurk inside all of us. It will come from people that understand that every one of us, every single day, wakes up in the morning with a soul in the scales. And there's a few weights on the dark side and a few weights on the light side. And we have to decide every day of our lives whether the scales will tip light or dark, hope or fear, unity or division. Hubert Humphrey had a lot of things happen to him that could have weighed down the wrong side of those scales. He made a deliberate decision every day of his life to tilt the scales in the right direction. And so must we. Thank you very much. Mr. Chairman, fellow Democrats, fellow Americans, I realize that in speaking in behalf of the Minority Report on Civil Rights, as presented by Congressman B. Miller of Wisconsin, that I'm dealing with a charged issue, with an issue which has been confused by emotionalism on all sides of the fence. I realize that there are here today friends and colleagues of mine, many of them, who feel just as deeply and keenly as I do about this issue, and who are yet in complete disagreement with me. My respect and admiration for these men and their views was great when I came to this convention. It is now far greater because of the sincerity, the courtesy, and the forthrightness with which many of them have argued in our prolonged discussions in the platform committee. Because of this very great respect, and because of my profound belief that we have a challenging task to do here, because good conscience, decent morality demands it, I feel I must rise at this time to support a report, the Minority Report, a report that spells out our democracy, a report that the people of this country can and will understand, and a report that they will enthusiastically acclaim on the great issue of civil rights. Now let me say this at the outset, that this proposal is made for no single region. Our proposal is made for no single class, for no single racial or religious group in mind. All of the regions of this country, all of the states, have shared in our precious heritage of American freedom.
All the states and all the regions have seen at least some of the infringements of that freedom. All people, get this, all people, white and black, all groups, all racial groups, have been the victims at time in this nation of, let me say, vicious discrimination. The masterly statement of our keynote speaker, the distinguished United States Senator from Kentucky, Alvin Barkley, made that point with great force. Speaking of the founder of our party, Thomas Jefferson, he said this, and I quote from Alvin Barkley, he did not proclaim that all the white or the black or the red or the yellow men are equal, that all Christian or Jewish men are equal, that all Protestant and Catholic men are equal, that all rich and poor men are equal, that all good and bad men are equal. What he declared was that all men are equal, and the equality which he proclaimed was the equality in the right to enjoy the blessings of free government in which they may participate and to which they have given their support. Now, these words of Senator Barclays are appropriate to this convention, appropriate to this convention of the oldest, the most truly progressive political party in America. From the time of Thomas Jefferson, the time when that immortal American doctrine of individual rights under just and fairly administered laws, the Democratic Party has tried hard to secure expanding freedom for all citizens. Oh, yes, I know. Other political parties may have talked more about civil rights, but the Democratic Party has surely done more about civil rights. We have made progress. We've made great progress in every part of this country. We've made great progress in the South. We've made it in the West, in the North, and in the East. But we must now focus the direction of that progress towards the, towards the realization of a full program of civil rights to all. This convention must set out more specifically the directions in which our party efforts are to go. We can be proud that we can be guided by the courageous trailblazing of two great democratic presidents. We can be proud of the fact that our great and beloved immortal leader Franklin Roosevelt gave us guidance. And we can be proud of the fact we can be proud of the fact that Harry Truman has had the courage to give to the people of America the new Emancipation Proclamation. It seems to me, it seems to me that the Democratic Party needs to make definite pledges of the kind suggested in the Minority Report to maintain the trust and the confidence placed in it by the people of all races and all sections of this country. Sure, we're here as Democrats, but my good friends, we're here as Americans. We're here as the believers in the principle and the ideology of democracy. And I firmly believe that as men concerned with our country's future, we must specify in our platform the guarantees which we have mentioned in the Minority Report. Yes, this is far more than a party matter. Every citizen in this country has a stake in the emergence of the United States as a leader in a free world. That world is being challenged by the world of slavery. For us to play our part effectively, we must be in a morally sound position. We can't use a double standard. 
There's no room for double standards in American politics, for measuring our own and other people's policies. Our demands for democratic practices in other lands will be no more effective than the guarantee of those practices in our own country. Friends, delegates, I do not believe that there can be any compromise on the guarantees of the civil rights which we have mentioned in the Minority Report. In spite, in spite of my desire for unanimous agreement on the entire platform, in spite of my desire to see everybody here in honest and unanimous agreement, there are some matters which I think must be stated clearly and without qualification. There can be no hedging. The newspaper headlines are wrong. There will be no hedging, and there will be no watering down, if you please, of the instruments and the principles of the civil rights program. <laughs> to those who say, my friends, to those who say that we are rushing this issue of civil rights, I say to them, we are 172 years late. To those who say, to those who say that this civil rights program is an infringement on states' rights, I say this, the time has arrived in America for the Democratic Party to get out of the shadows of states' rights and to walk forthrightly into the bright sunshine of human rights. People, people, human beings, this is the issue of the 20th century. People of all kinds, all sorts of people. And these people are looking to America for leadership and they're looking to America for precept and example. My good friends, my fellow Democrats, I ask you for a calm consideration of our historic opportunity. Let us not forget the evil, let us do forget the evil passions and the blindness of the past. In these times of world, economic, political, and spiritual, above all spiritual crisis, we cannot and we must not turn from the path so plainly before us. That path has already led us through many valleys of the shadow of death, and now is the time to recall those who were left on that path of American freedom. For all of us here, for the millions who have sent us, for the whole two billion members of the human family, our land is now more than ever before the last best hope on earth. And I know that we can, and I know that we shall, began here the fuller and richer realization of that hope that promise of a land where all men are truly free and equal, and each man uses his freedom and equality wisely well. My good friends, I ask my party, I ask the Democratic Party to march down the high road of progressive democracy. I ask this convention, I ask this convention to say in unmistakable terms that we proudly hail and we courageously support our president and leader, Harry Truman, in his great fight for civil rights in America. Wow. Now, that is a powerful speech. You can remember, it was given in 1948. This was 20 years before 
1968 uh, housing bill, which was the last big bill that, that Lyndon Johnson passed. And it is really, I would say, the beginning of the civil rights era in America. You know, Harry Truman was catching flack for having integrated the Army. And this speech would trigger our own senator from South Carolina, and that's where we do these shows, uh, Strom Thurmond, to walk out of the 1948 uh, Democratic Convention. And they would then form the Dixiecrat Party, and he would run for president in 1948 against Harry Truman over this plank that was uh, that, that, that Senator Humphrey was giving that speech about. And, uh, you know, that was kind of the wrong side of history for Strom Thurmond to be on um, as much as, you know, I, I, I adored him later at, when I worked on, as a 25-year-old uh, for Senator Thurmond in his 90s. But Hubert Humphrey would remain a leader in that struggle, uh, you know, for civil rights, it'd be a big part of his 1960 presidential campaign. He would lose that campaign in 1964 to John F. Kennedy. Lyndon Johnson went up on the ticket. Kennedy assassinated. Johnson becomes president. He's got to find a vice president. And he does this. We, we covered this in our third season. He's got this dilemma about Robert F. Kennedy and he's how he's gonna who he's gonna pick to be his vice president. But in reality, there really was no other one that he he was considering. He wanted Hubert Humphrey. He respected Hubert Humphrey that much, and I think he knew how respected and well thought of Hubert Humphrey was uh, in the United States Senate and around the nation because of the bravery that Humphreys had always shown on things like civil rights. So he picks him to be the vice president, and we have a great phone call between uh, President Johnson and uh, Hubert Humphrey uh, on the night of the election. And it's really interesting because Lyndon Johnson will win a huge re uh, election in his own right to the presidency. I mean, it's the biggest landslide to date uh, over Barry Goldwater. And yet, if you listen to this call, Johnson sounds pretty down on the eve of this massive landslide that he knew was coming. And Hubert, you see what people like about Hubert Humphrey in this call because he's the great cheerleader cheering on uh, a kind of depressed or down Lyndon Johnson. Hello? Mr. President? How are you, Hubert? Well, I'm fine, and how are you? Oh, I'm just kind of broken up. I'm aching all over. I got a headache and my damn bones, uh, hips hurting me, and I just, uh, I'm just worn out. I just called you because I hadn't bothered you, and uh, I didn't want to, and I didn't think it, I didn't think it's a good thing to do. But uh, I wanted to tell you first before I told anybody else that uh, you had no orders, and you had no instructions, and you had no mistakes, and. Uh, uh, I just don't know how anybody can do any better than that. Well, Mr. President, you're wonderful to me. We worked hard, and I enjoyed it very much. Well, you and your wife and your family are just perfect, and I was, I was awfully convinced about the night I went up to Atlantic City, but I'm a lot more convinced tonight. And uh, Everybody makes some mistakes, and they've got to write them out. And, you got to suffer with them and understand them that uh, uh, you and me didn't make didn't slip a bobble in your family and I just wanted all of you to yeah. take whatever little comfort that you knew that uh, Lady Bird and I loved you and 
Well, we love you, Mr. President, and Lady Bird, and we've been thinking about you. I haven't wanted to bother you either. I knew you were on the move every day, but we've been keeping in touch with your boys. Well, that's the way to... That's... We've you handled it. You've handled it just perfect, and I couldn't improve on it, and I just give you a double plus, and you probably never get that good a grade again. <laughs> I know we're going to have a big victory tonight, Mr. President. I don't pass many of them out, uh, but uh, I feel that way about it. I hope so. I don't know. I'm sitting near the Oklahoma Thorn Bear, and they're rubbing me. I got a bad hip. I got a. I've been standing on my right leg. Your hip ever hurt you? Yes, sir, Ree. And I'll tell you, you know that I uh, had a period in this campaign where I thought my hips and legs were going to kill me. Well, you just did perfect. You wound up happier. I told the press this morning you were happier when you started and ending you were, and you started and you were more effective. And Oh, that television, uh, those television, I saw them. I didn't see them on TV, but I saw them on a practice thing ahead of time. And it was just perfect. Oh, you were so restrained and so effective. And you looked like God just as fresh as a daisy. You must have done them. I felt good, and I think we got some good licks in off the West Coast, Mr. President. Well, I know. You seemed like you had wonderful crowds. Yes, sir, we surely did. And I stopped by at Salt Lake City on the way home just to get in another punch or two on some uh, statewide TV. And I, I was very careful and uh, very uh, very restrained. I didn't go on any attack. I just talked about the, the issue of public morality in terms of public service. Oh, Hubert, I wish you'd see what these sons of bitches have done. They bought four full-page ads in most papers. Some of them just got 12 pages, some 16 four full pages in this state and it's all integrity and morality and Baker and Jenkins and Billy Saul Estes and uh, I know they had five full pages in the Los Angeles Times on Sunday five full pages and they've got out an instruction from the the Negro Protective League that says that any Negro goes votes that the Protective League just wants to inform him as their friend if he's ever had a traffic ticket, if he's ever been under suspicion, if he's ever been speeding, if he's ever had a over parking ticket, if he ever hadn't paid his taxes on time, if he's ever been discharged from employment, that uh, he'll have to report right away to the sheriff, and that uh, these things will have to be settled before he can clear his record to vote. And they put those out in all southern cities, just the meanest, dirtiest, low-down stuff that I ever heard. I ought to go to jail for it. It's just it's just inhuman. Well, they've been doing it. I tell you, they were doing it out in the Mexican areas, the same thing in California. And uh, I made uh, several talks and uh, uh, appearances on the Los Angeles stations. I got some good cooperation from the news commentators, letting them know that these people know that... Uh, no one had a right to interfere with their right to vote, and that the Justice Department was standing by to make sure that the citizens' rights were being upheld. And we called Nick Katzen back, and as you know, he issued some statement to the effect that the Justice Department was standing by to make sure that uh, there was no uh, interference with the citizens' right to vote. We got to set us up. The first thing you had to start looking about is how you're going to have a relationship with the Senate. Now, there's not going to be any jealousy between me and you. You know that. But uh, I want you to try to figure out what the problems we got. 
how we can get a committee chairman and them got but three or four there that's worth a good goddamn. We want to investigate these election things, and we want to have committees we can refer things to that uh, that, uh, that we can do something about. So we just ought to be thinking about who has the ability and who has the guts. That's right. If Howard Cannon's elected, he's won. Yes, sir. He's, uh, he's a good one. Uh, we've got a fellow, i tell you, one boy that's got guts. If you'll get in there and take is Johnny Pastore. Well, he won't do it. He wants to see, he's got that Catholic wife, and he's got to get home every Thursday. Yeah, that's right. That's where you're so right about that. Well, I'll look them over very carefully. There, we are, We're a little short on those kind of people. We've got to find them, and I'll see you now. We're going to have all of the 300 press down here. I'm coming down tomorrow. And you get here in time for that barbecue. It's going to be out here at noon, and... Uh, Helicopter. About 12:30. You let them know what time you're arriving and where, and a helicopter will bring you out to Austin, and then you just stay as long as you feel like it, and bring whoever you want to. And thank your, uh, thank your sweet wife and all your children. Well, I will, Mr. President. And listen, be of good cheer. We're yeah. going to give them the damnedest licking they ever had in their life. I don't know about that, but yes, I hope. Sir. I hope that's right. And How many states we're going to carry? I think you're going to carry about 40, 46. Okay. That, that we will. All right. Okay. And uh, when, uh, I, by the way, I just want to let you know that after the uh, the latter part of the week, I hope to take off a few days and uh, get some sunshine on the island. You ought to. Now, what about the, you got to, you just got to. We're in trouble in Vietnam, serious trouble. I told them to keep you informed. Yes, sir. Uh, we're going to have to hit back there. Yeah. Uh, the, um, uh, are you going to carry Minnesota? Oh, oh, boy. I don't want to sound too, too uh, optimistic, but we'll carry Minnesota by 250,000 votes or more. Out of how many? Out of a million three. That'll be the biggest one ever? Yep. We're going to get the biggest vote ever out of Minnesota. Well, now, you encourage that tonight in all these states as a mandate, because they're going to say, well, that's the meaning thing, and so oh, on and so forth. So we'll start that right away, Mr. President. They're going to do two things. The boys, that even some of them that endorse you, are going to say, some of these papers say, well, this wasn't a mandate, this is just an anti-Goldwater. That's right. Now, the next thing they're going to say is, well, watch out for Humphrey. He's not going to be loyal. I read one of those. Well, you just tell them that, uh, you just tell them that you've never seen such a campaigner that people love, like Johnson. I got you got to where so contagious, you loved him yourself. Well, and I want to tell you, Mr. President, when the day comes that I can't be loyal to you, why, you just fire me. I know that. I know that. Don't, no, no. Charges. Papers, no papers ever going to come between us. Nobody else. Sure. You just tell me what you want me to do. Oh, goodbye. God bless you. Tell Muriel I said I called her. Tell Muriel I called her. Okay, I will. We went in, uh, me and my family went in 49 states, and Muriel took the 50th on the last one. <laughs> I know, I so, know. Goodbye. I'll tell her. God bless you. Bye. In the 1960s, of course, the 1964 bill would come up, and that was the uh, the the one that ended uh, you know segregation in public places and restaurants and hotels and and just you know, all the public places. Um, and CBS would have Hubert Humphrey and Strom Thurmond on to debate that bill. We we simply have to face up to this question: Are we as a nation now ready to guarantee equal protection of the laws? as declared in our Constitution, to every American, regardless of his race, his color, or his creed. The time has arrived for this nation to create a framework of law 
in which we can resolve our problems honorably and peacefully. Each American knows that the promises of freedom and equal treatment found in the Constitution and the laws of this country are not being fulfilled for millions of our Negro citizens and for some other minority groups. Deep in our heart, we know, we know that such denials of civil rights, which we have heard about, which we've witnessed, are still taking place today. And we know that as long as freedom and equality is denied to anyone, in a sense, weakens all of us. There is indisputable evidence that fellow Americans who happen to be Negro have been denied the right to vote in a flagrant fashion. And we know that fellow Americans who happen to be Negro have been denied equal access to places of public accommodation, denied in their travels the chance for a place to rest and to eat and to relax. We know that one decade after the Supreme Court's decision declaring school segregation to be unconstitutional, that less than 2% of the southern school districts are desegregated. And we know that Negroes do not enjoy equal employment opportunities. Frequently, they are the last to be hired and the first to be fired. Now, the time has come for us to correct these evils. And the Civil Rights Bill before the Senate is designed for that purpose. It is moderate, it is reasonable, it is well designed. It was passed by the House 290 to 130. It is bipartisan. And I think it will help give us the means to secure, for example, the right to vote for all of our people. And it will give us the means to make possible the admittance to schoolrooms of children regardless of their race. And it will make sure that no American will have to suffer the indignity of being refused service at a public place. This passage of the civil rights issue or bill to me is one of the great moral challenges of our time. This is not a partisan issue. This is not a sectional issue. This is in essence a national issue and it is a moral issue. And it must be won by the American people. Senator Humphrey, that takes your three, your three minutes, I think. And now, Senator Thurmond, three minutes. Mr. Please. Severide and my colleague, Senator Humphrey. This bill, in order to bestow preferential rights on a favored few who vote in bloc, would sacrifice the constitutional rights of every citizen and would concentrate in the national government arbitrary powers unchained by laws to suppress the liberty of all. This bill makes a shambles of constitutional guarantees and the Bill of Rights. It permits a man to be jailed and fined without a jury trial. It empowers the national government to tell each citizen who must be allowed to enter upon and use his property without any compensation or due process of law as guaranteed by the Constitution. This bill would take away the rights of individuals and give to government the power to decide who is to be hired, fired, and promoted in private businesses. This bill would take away the right of individuals and give to government the power to abolish the seniority rule in, favor, in labor unions and apprenticeship programs. This bill would abandon the principle of a government of laws in favor of a government of men. It would give the power in government to government bureaucrats to decide what is discrimination. This bill would open wide the door for political favoritism with federal funds. It would vest the power in various bureaucrats to give or withhold grants, loans, and contracts on the basis of who 
in the bureaucrat's discretion is guilty of the undefined crime of discrimination. It is because of these and other radical departures from our constitutional system that the attempt is being made to railroad this bill through Congress without following normal procedures. It was only after lawless riots and demonstrations sprang up all over the country that the administration, after two years in office, sent this bill to Congress where it has been made even worse. This bill is intended to increase or to appease those waging a vicious campaign of civil disobedience. The leaders of the demonstrations have already stated that passage of the bill will not stop the mobs. Submitting to intimidation will only encourage further to mob violence and to gain preferential treatment. The issue is whether the Senate will say <clears throat> or will pay the high cost of sacrificing uh, a precious portion of each and every individual's constitutional rights in a vain effort to satisfy the demands of them all. The choice is between law and anarchy. What shall rule these United States, the Constitution or the mob? Randall Wallace, uh, your host for Bridging the Political Gap. I want to thank you first for tuning in to our podcast and invite you to come to our website, randallwallace.com. There you can get a copy of our book, Always Vote Your Conscience, Don't Take It Personally, and Don't Fight the Same Old Battles Over and Over Again, with a lot of policy suggestions and things that I think everyone could embrace, an argument for why we need to be working together instead of fighting with each other. Also, you can take a look at the first 11 episodes of this podcast, which was a podcast documentary that looked at the World War II generation of bipartisan leadership that built the American century and the lessons we can learn from them to apply to today's situations. Again, thanks for tuning in to our podcast. And if you've enjoyed our show, please leave us a review at wherever you get your podcast. And now, let's get back to the show. Hello, I'm Tom Gerald outside the rotunda of the U.S. Capitol, where thousands continue to file by the coffin of Senator Hubert Humphrey. Chase in New York, and this is the ABC Saturday News, January 14, 1978. Some of what's ahead tonight. The nation pays tribute to Senator Hubert Humphrey, who died last night of cancer. We'll have reports. And a review of Humphrey's 30-year career in government. Our top story tonight, an outpouring of tributes to Hubert Horatio Humphrey. The senator and former vice president died of cancer last night at the age of 66. Today, a presidential jet carried Humphrey's body from his Minnesota home to Washington to lie in state in the Capitol Rotunda. Tom Gerrell is there. Tonight, the flag is flying at half-mast over the nation's capital, the building where Hubert Humphrey labored as a public servant for almost 30 years. 
Inside, under the great dome, Humphrey's friends and admirers are filing by to pay their respects and to say goodbye. There's no likeness of Hubert Humphrey here in Statuary Hall off the rotunda, not yet. But his impressive legislative record certainly places him among the greats of Congress. It was last night in Minnesota at his small hometown of Waverly where the Humphrey career came to an end. We have reports on the last 24 hours. First, Herbert Kaplow in Minnesota. It was dark before most of the reporters could find their way to the lakeside home that Hubert Humphrey loved so much. They'd come from nearby St. Paul in Minneapolis and from afar from Chicago in Washington, alerted just a few hours earlier that the already bad situation had worsened. And yet the end seemed to come so much more quickly than they'd expected. Senator Humphrey passed away quietly in his sleep at 9.25 p.m. today. <clears throat> at his bedside were his wife, Muriel, as well as his sons, Skip, Bob, and Doug, and their wives, and his daughter, Nancy, and her husband, Bruce Solomonson. The senator was comfortable throughout and he suffered no pain. He had been in a coma prior to his death. Shortly after midnight, a hearse carried Hubert Humphrey away from the lakeside home he loved so much. A few hours later, at the Minneapolis airport, 50 miles to the east of Waverly, he was carried aboard a plane dispatched by President Carter. It was just becoming daylight when Mrs. Humphrey arrived, his wife of 41 years, to whom he'd written way back then, I intend to set my aim at Congress. Don't laugh at me, Muriel. Maybe it sounds rather egotistical and beyond reason, but I do know others have succeeded. You'll help me, I know. And so they started again back to Washington, to Andrews Air Force Base, where just a few hours earlier, Hubert Humphrey's most prominent protege spoke his affection and grief. Uh, he's been a remarkable example to all of us in life and perhaps above all has showed us all how to die with dignity with courage with spirit and with meaning it's one of the most saddest moments in my life I shall never forget him and I believe Neither will most Americans. Thank you. This is Charles Gibson. It was to Andrews Air Force Base that the body of Senator Humphrey was brought this morning. His flag-draped casket was brought off the presidential aircraft that had been sent just hours earlier to Minnesota, the same plane that had carried the bodies of John Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson back to Washington. Humphrey was accorded honors befitting his role as a former vice president, ruffles and flourishes, and a 19-gun salute. President Mondale headed the dignitaries at Andrews. He stayed close by the side of Mrs. Humphrey. The ceremonies were brief. The military honor guard placed the casket in a hearse 
which then led the long motorcade taking Senator Humphrey to the Capitol. Hubert Humphrey earlier this week had talked of returning to work when Congress reconvened, but it was not to be. He now is the 25th American in 126 years to lie in state at the Capitol, Henry Clay, the first in 1852. The closed casket was placed directly beneath the Capitol Rotunda on the Lincoln catafalque, first used after the assassination of President Lincoln. The first half hour was reserved for a private family prayer service. Senate Chaplain Edward Elson spoke of Humphrey's inclusive love of all mankind. Then dignitaries and mourners who were friends of the Humphreys paid their respects. Mrs. Humphrey had a greeting and a hug for almost all of them. And finally, the Capitol was opened to those who had started lining up even before the body had been brought to the Capitol. Thousands have filed by already this evening, and the Capitol Police are going to keep the rotunda open throughout the night. Charles Gibson, ABC News, Washington. Tonight, the rotunda stays open for viewing for all those who are paying their last respects to the senator from Minnesota. Tomorrow, there'll be a memorial service with President Carter delivering the eulogy. We'll be back in a moment with more on Hubert Horatio Humphrey. A man can't be in public life for 30 years without having adversaries, but you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone here in Washington who didn't like Hubert Humphrey. One colleague said of him, he defeated his enemies with love. Many were embarrassed by his politics of joy during the 1968 anti-war political campaign, but nothing could keep the happy warrior down for long. ABC's Bob Clark tells us of his life and his career. Hubert Horatio Humphrey, the most famous Minnesotan of his time, was born the son of a South Dakota druggist who loved politics. For Humphrey, politics became a love affair that lasted all his life. He was the mayor of Minneapolis at the age of 34, the youngest mayor in the city's history. He drew his first national attention three years later when he led the successful fight to include a strong civil rights plank in the Democratic platform at the party's 1948 convention. Humphrey won election to the Senate the same year. By 1960, after two Senate terms, he was ready for his first run at the presidency, but so was John Kennedy. Humphrey lost a showdown primary in West Virginia, and Kennedy went to the White House. But by 1964, Lyndon Johnson was president, and after tantalizing Democrats with a make-believe search for the perfect running mate, he picked the man he had settled on from the start, Hubert Humphrey. The Johnson-Humphrey ticket buried Barry Goldwater under a landslide of votes. Hubert Humphrey became vice president. But this made him more Lyndon Johnson's man than his own. When he sought the Democratic nomination for president in 1968, the party was bitterly divided over the Vietnam War. Humphrey was scorned by liberals whose banner he'd carried so long. Chicago police ruthlessly quelled demonstrations by anti-war protesters, many of them supporting Humphrey's old friend, Gene McCarthy. The prize, the presidential nomination, was Humphrey's, but his acceptance speech sounded a note of foreboding. May America tonight resolve that never, never again shall we see what we have seen 
The task of reuniting the Democratic Party against the challenge of Richard Nixon proved hopeless. Despite a last-minute surge, Humphrey lost the election and the presidency by a half million votes. The rejected candidate went home to Minnesota to teach political science. But the academic life was not for Hubert Humphrey, not for long. Minnesotans still loved him and sent him back to the Senate in 1970. He began rebuilding his political fortunes with his wife Muriel at his side, as she had always been. Uh, People like her, and she's a very charming and lovely lady. She is a fine mother, and people respect that as well. Besides that, she's my pal. Humphrey made a half-hearted try for the Democratic presidential nomination again in 1972, but that was George McGovern's year. The yearning for the presidency still smoldered in Humphrey in 1976, but he sat out the primaries until it was too late for anybody to stop Jimmy Carter. I shall serve the party, the Democratic Party, to the best of my ability. In the status of a citizen, a senator, and a non-candidate. The prize he had coveted all his political life, the presidency, would never be his. But he was still a senator and full of plans once again for the future. Then the cancer he had fought off once before struck again. It shriveled his body, but not his spirit. I'm running a uh, hard battle against uh, uh, one of the great killer diseases called cancer. I'm not afraid to mention the name. I have the will to live, and I intend to live a long time. And more importantly, I intend to live every day to the fullest. Indeed, Humphrey did live his last days to the fullest. He worked on the full employment bill. He counseled the new president with advice on how to get along with Congress. And tomorrow morning, President Carter will deliver the eulogy here. Also, the two former presidents, Gerald Ford and Richard Nixon, will attend the memorial service. This is Richard Nixon's first trip to Washington since his resignation. ABC's Don Farmer tells us of others who remembered the senator from Minnesota. There were the official ways of remembering, revering Hubert Humphrey, the lowered flags, the prescribed things we do as a society to show respect and to deal with our grief. And there were the official people, the men who shared leadership with Humphrey and thus knew him and loved him amidst the trappings of influence and power. So you had had the feeling, you know, especially those of us who've known him for so many years, that somehow, you know, he'd survived this, that uh, he would defeat death. And I got the feeling that if there was a man... Uh, whoever lived who could defeat death, it would be Hubert. Hubert Humphrey always, in an irresistible way, represented nothing but good. I think he'll be remembered as a great legislator. He was a great vice president, but primarily, I think he was a man of the Senate. And yes. He'll be remembered that yes. way. Yes, and as Kipling uh, wrote about in, in his poem, If, if you can uh, walk with kings and not lose the common touch and here was a man who walked with kings and he never lost that common touch outside Washington people also gathered to remember people with special memories in Atlanta a black congregation joined Dr. Martin Luther King senior in honoring that white man from Minnesota who did so much for black and white Americans he's not dead anybody who served as well as he did as useful as he did, cannot die. A man in the bed, weighing less than 100 pounds, a cancer, 
had gotten to his body, but his soul and his spirit and his heart and his mind, they were all intact. As he sat in the bed, describing still yet visions for a new and a just America. Just as Martin Luther King uh, helped the poor and the needy in the streets, it was Hubert Humphrey that fought the battles in the Congress uh, and translated the passions and yearnings of poor people everywhere uh, into legislative action. In life, Mr. Humphrey had heard such praise from such prominent people many times. Today, the people who never knew him, whom he never knew, were coming to say goodbye in the Capitol Rotunda and outside the building which Humphrey had graced for so long. He's just basically a good person, and he was what I saw as a mediator for right. No matter where you found him, he was that man that stood up for what was right. So I think if we can get anything out of this man for our individual lives, is how to go on from not succeeding in something. To me, alongside with Harry Truman, he stands as, a, as the two best Americans that this country has ever had. I think my regret is that I've always wanted to write to him and thank him personally for what I feel he's done, and I've never done it. And so all those people who never wrote letters came here and perhaps felt better for it, for having shared their grief. There will be millions of words of remembrance for Hubert Humphrey, but Vice President Mondale said it best. He said to speak of him in the past tense is almost impossible. Don Farmer, ABC News in Washington. Hubert Humphrey City of Washington is a place where mistakes are often magnified and elected officials are usually more open for criticism than acclaim. In Senator Humphrey's final months, Washington also showed it is a place with heart that can accomplish some things quickly despite the bureaucracy. After the senator was told he had terminal cancer last fall, President Carter delighted him by flying him back to Washington aboard the aircraft Humphrey always wanted to command himself, the presidential jet. He, along with his wife Muriel, were welcomed back with unprecedented honors. The Congress suspended business to greet the Humphreys and to permit him to speak to both houses. He was elevated to the post of deputy pro tem of the Senate, a top position created by law, especially for Humphrey. The headquarters of HEW, whose human need programs he championed, was named for Hubert Humphrey, the first such honor afforded a living senator. And friends from both major political parties and leading figures from the entertainment world assembled in Washington to raise millions of dollars for the Humphrey Library in Minnesota, a living memorial which was assured before his death. So briefly, this cold official Washington opened its heart to Hubert Humphrey as he fought the pain of cancer and the bottled death of chemotherapy treatment, as he called it. The senator also experienced a warmth that most great men never know, a compassionate farewell while he was alive from those who loved him. It was truly a remarkable life. Hubert Humphrey uh, was a major player through the 1940s and the beginning of civil rights in through Vietnam and into the 70s and into the Carter administration as a U.S. senator. And his impact was pretty large. But I think probably the best example was that he was that happy warrior during the most tumultuous time probably in all of American history save the Civil War. Hubert Humphrey 
was the nice guy, and he was a a person who held no grudges. He had it was there was no demons that were there. He was just a guy who worked hard to do a good job and do the best job for the most people, especially poor people, especially minority groups that that had been marginalized. You know, it's it's I I said this at the beginning of the show, and and I'll say it now. He was probably, as far as just being a good human being, the best of the whole generation. And as lucky as America was that Richard Nixon was elected in 1968, and all that Richard Nixon did uh, that makes him one of the four greatest presidents in American history, I do think it's sad that Hubert Humphrey never got another opportunity to take a bite at the presidential apple. There's no telling what or how good a president he would have been had he ever gotten that opportunity. History, it, it, it you know, it didn't happen, so we'll never know. Um, and, and of course, with such a remarkable presidency as Richard Nixon's, it's hard to say that you would have rather it turn the other way. But um, like I said, he was a, a truly good, a great man, but also a good man. And I think almost universally everyone agrees with that. And I'm going to give him the last word. As he was dying of cancer, he went and spoke to uh, the labor uh, unions in Minnesota. And that is his final speech. And I thought we would share it with you today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. do what I used to do when I'd be campaigning. When I'd get down and out, I'd say, well, where's the labor crowd? I'd go over to a labor hall, or I'd go up on the iron range, or I'd come over to the trades and labor assembly, or I'd go over to the central labor union, and I'd see my friends, and I'd get all pumped up again, and forget, and I'd be able to forget that something went wrong the day before, and that's the way we're going to do it today. thing I want to say to you as individuals and as a movement, if you're going to be something, if you're going to do something, you have to be proud of yourself. And you have to be proud of your heritage as a labor movement, just as you are proud of your family or of your religion or whatever else it may be. And I've always been associated with the labor movement. I told the President of the United States at a private luncheon that we had not long ago, I said, Mr. President, you just have to understand in our discussions, there's just a couple of things that I may be slightly prejudiced on, amongst others. But I said, I never would have been in the United States Senate had it not have been for my friends in the labor movement. And please don't ever ask me to do anything 
that would in any way injure or cripple or weaken that movement. I said, other than that, you can ask for almost anything. But I have some loyalties and I have some priorities. And one of my loyalties has been to this great movement. And I'll tell you why. Not because you're perfect. Not because there hasn't been a scoundrel now and then. Because none of us are perfect. We've all made mistakes. And God only knows. Some of us have made too many. But we judge a movement like this by its overall record. And we judge the labor movement on what it has done to lift the standard of living for millions and millions and millions of plain American citizens who today can have their own home, who today have decent working conditions, who today can send their children to a good school. It never could have happened without you. Be proud of it, dear friends. Be proud of it. Just remember this. Mom said, yeah, they'll take your picture if you wipe your eyes with the Kleenex. Well, that's all right. Take it. <laughs> the that doesn't have any tears, doesn't have any heart. The history of the labor movement needs to be taught in every school in this land. We need to know our roots. As they say, we learned about roots, didn't we, in 1976. We need to know who we are, what we are, where we come from, how we got here. You've heard me say this before. It is imperative. It is a part of American history. This great nation wasn't built just because somebody sat behind a table and finagled and even financed. Important as finance is, and it is important. Important as planning is, it is important. Important as design is, and it is important. Ultimately, it's the worker. It was the worker that built the railroads, that dug the tunnels, that dredged the rivers, that built the ports that built the huge skyscrapers, put in the highways, and built the homes. America is a living testimonial to what free men and women organized in free democratic trade unions can do to make a better life. And we ought to be proud of it. Just remember that. The first thing that any authoritarian or any two-bit dictator does is to abolish free labor. That's the first thing. Long before they get the expropriation of land, long before they get even putting into jail the so-called political prisoners, they abolish a free labor movement. And in America, thank God, instead of abolishing, abolishing our labor movement, we're going to strengthen it. And workers today that are not organized, many of them particularly in the Deep South, workers today that do not have the working conditions that they ought to have, are going to have a better chance 
Nobody's going to give it to them on a platter. It's not going to be easy. But they're not going to have everything set against them. They're going to have a chance once we get this labor reform bill passed so that when they have a vote in their plant and the vote is taken and if the union wins, the union is recognized and there's none of this nonsense of delay and litigation and obstruction such as has prevented the labor movement of the United States from its legitimate growth. Oh, what have you done with free organized labor? Collective bargaining, better wages. Now, everybody, every time anybody gets a little better wages, somebody says, inflation, right away. The banker raises the interest rates, they say, sound monetary policy. <laughs> you know that. Thank God for collective bargaining. What it's meant to the income of our families what it's meant for working conditions, what it's meant for grievance procedures, what it's meant for job security, what it's meant for re recreation and vacation so that families can get together and travel across this country, what it's meant for pensions, and what it's meant for health. Millions of Americans today have health care, not because the government has passed it, because we haven't had the guts to do it but because negotiators have sat down at the table with their employers and have worked out a health and welfare pension program commonly called fringe benefits, which makes it possible for you as a union member to have good health care with the best of doctors in the best of hospitals and not have to go broke during the whole process. Isn't that a marvelous thing? Now, who does that hurt? See, we need to tell people about this. The doctors get their money, the hospitals get their money, the family still survives, the community is better off. What's all this nonsense about that when you get a little wage increase for a worker, and of course, by the way, you generally negotiate, you know, three-year contracts, and when they put it in the paper, they put the whole three-year contract in as if it was all the first year. I tell you, dear friends, a three-year contract is the first year to catch up for what you just lost. The second year is to try to get a little bit ahead, and the third year is to try to maintain even. So you're just, you're really battling hard. But the American worker, and let's get this down straight now, the American worker is the most productive worker in the world. The most productive worker in the world. I can hear somebody say, yeah, you can expect that from Humphrey. Don't expect it from me. That's the official record. We have the best labor relations in the world. Fewer work stoppages than any other industrialized country. Not bad. We have a responsible labor movement. <laughs> One of the things that's got to be done is for the government of the United States, by official declared policy, to state that the goal and the objective of all the policies of the government of the United States is full employment and economic growth. And that is what the Humphrey-Hawkins bill is all about. To see to it 
Humphrey Hawkins bill and I want you to get the literature about it. I don't want you to be deceived by these letters to the editors. I don't want you to be fooled by these ill-informed editorials that appear from time to time. The whole purpose of the Humphrey Hawkins bill is to utilize the resources of the government in coordination with private enterprise to maximize private enterprise, to see that private enterprise has the credit, the money, the resources, the trained workers that are necessary to keep this economy of ours growing so that the, as the labor force grows, we can absorb the new ones and that we can pick up the millions that have been left behind. The second part of the Humphrey Hawkins bill is merely what we're doing today, but not enough. Emergency public works, the comprehensive educational training program known as CETA, the special aid to our cities, the Job Corps, the Youth Employment Program, of which I was a co-author, as was Wendy. But we need to do more of it. Ladies and gentlemen, the greatest enemy America has today is the fact that there are seven million people capable of working, that ought to be working, that are unemployed, and of those seven million, three million are youth. between the ages of 16 and 22. And many of them have never had a job. Many of them have never known work discipline. Many of them know nothing of the therapy that comes from work, and they've learned how to live off the street. And I'm here to tell you that as long as you have that many people unemployed, you'll never cut the crime rate. You'll never get at dope addiction. You'll never solve the social and economic problems which you read about, which plague our cities and move into our countryside. Solving the problems of unemployment is not only an economic necessity, it is a social necessity. We need to wage war upon unemployment. We need to have the same commitment to it. But we move on it. Even now, even though we're doing five times better than we did, we move slowly. Take a look at how long it has taken us to even set up a job corps center. So many people have got to pick at it, and we have to go through so many different little rules and regulations. Let me tell you, Franklin Roosevelt set up the Civilian Conservation Corps back in the 30s. You remember some of you, the old CCC camps. He put one man in charge. He called him in in March, and he said to this gentleman, by the end of June, I want 500,000 young men in camps, out in the forest, at work, clothed, with the tools, and ready to go to work from March until June. And by June 30th, 530,000 young men were at work in the camps out in the forest doing the job. It can be done. You just got to make up your mind to do it. Did you know that Roosevelt never had a welfare program? No, the welfare was taken care of by some local county people. He had a work program. If you didn't have a job, there was a job offered. Work. We've got things to do in this country. And we've gone along here, piddling along, and we've been spending billions and billions and billions 
We've never made up our mind that America needed something. Forests to be replanted, cities to be rebuilt, railroads, my goodness, railroads that need modernization and rebuilding, hundreds and thousands, over 30,000 bridges in America that are out of date, that slow up our transportation system, ports that are too old and too small to take care of modern shipping. The list is unlimited. We're 15 years behind in reforestation. It isn't only the elm disease. And by the way, we ought to have an urban forestation program too. Plant trees in our cities, just as we do in our countryside. We've got things to do in this country. And I want the labor movement to start demanding that they be done. That's the way we get things done. You see, we've got to look ahead. Grandpa Humphrey has no right to just use up the inheritance that came to me and leave nothing for my grandchildren. And we have been doing that. We've been using up our land. We've been using up our water. We've been using up our oil. We've been fouling up our air. And now we're asking ourselves, can we afford to do anything about it? Let me ask you something. If the Soviet Union were to attack us or some other country, and we knew that they were going to conquer large areas, you think we'd stand back and say, do you think we can afford to defend ourselves? You know what would happen. This country would rally, pray God, soon enough. And we'd wage a battle to the very last person, if need be. We wouldn't ask whether we could afford it. Did you ever hear anybody say during World War II, do you think we can afford to fight Hitler? And by the way, we financed World War II with scarcity of money, scarcity of commodities, scarcity of supply with 2% interest. 2% money, 2% money. Because we had a president then, we had an economic philosophy that said it could be done. And all of this requires work, and we're not going to go broke doing it. No nation ever went bankrupt building. You go bankrupt in wars. No nation ever lost its life trying to save life. You lose your life when you take life. And I ask the labor movement to really once again become the idealistic, conscious, conscience of American politics. Too many people in politics today are afraid. They're afraid. They say, oh, they won't go for this. Well, I knew they wouldn't go for civil rights in 1948. I knew they wouldn't go for Medicare in 1949. I knew that they wouldn't go for the Peace Corps in 1958. And I knew they wouldn't go, if you please, for the Arms Control and Disarmament Agency in 1959. But ultimately, they did. If you're going to be a man in politics, 
You have to be like a soldier on the battlefield. You know there are risks. There's no guarantee of your life. But as somebody once said, I'd rather live 50 years like a tiger than 100 years like a chicken. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again and so long for now.